and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and we're coming to you from the Berlin Film Festival. We sit down for a conversation with Petna Ndaliko Katendolo and Cherie Ndaliko about their film Capita, a reflection on colonialism and exploitation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm very pleased to be able to talk to you about your film and your project. So one of the things I found very intriguing about the work that you are featured with in the Berlinale this year is the aesthetics of it are so striking and so unusual. And right off the bat, to have the sound of the bees is very, very striking. And I wondered if you could comment on that. Thank you very much for having us on your show. Yeah, <laughs> the sound of the bees. You know, I th- this was your idea, right? <laughs> you're the one you're telling me, hey, <laughs> talk about the sound of the bees. The whole, the whole thing that are around the film was, uh, um, first of all, the process of making Capita started with working with the image. So we had already the story um, the narrative of the story already done with, with the image and the debate was uh, um, uh, among us uh, as a producer and, uh, and director of the film was to either to make this film silent so that the image can take the space and then also um, given that uh, because of the evolution of, of technology and of, of this, this time, like, people cannot stand silence anymore. You know, uh, so the, the debate was, do we keep it silence or do we find something which will have at the same time uh, much power as the image, which will not take anything from, from, from the images and, and also um, a sound which will also stand alone as, as a piece also of art. At the end, we, we, we were looking into metaphors of, of, of what we are saying with, with images. How can we go with, with, with bees? And definitely bees with the whole, what bees represent, was the perfect way to go with um, yeah, the proposition we had for images. Yeah. It's a wonderful metaphor in terms of everything that you're trying to represent in the film. I'm actually a classicist by training. I majored in Latin and... One of the most famous passages in Latin is actually from the Aeneid, where Virgil writes about Aeneas standing and looking at the Carthaginians, which is modern day Tunis, and describing them as bees who are busily working and excavating and doing all of these wonderful things for this civilization that will come to be. And I just think it's so powerful, though, to see that reclaimed in a way with the image of the capita. And I was wondering if you could explain what the meaning of the title of your film is as well. Well, capita was a uh, capita. It is. Yeah, capita still uh, an official title uh, that is given to a representative of um the, the whole thing about Capita started uh, during the colonial era, and Capita is that, that representative of the, the white work in all sphere of working, and, and they're the one they're there to make sure that uh, whatever the, the, the master wanted should be followed. And um, even with the film going back and forth, it is we're dealing with a, a showing that the same role that the Capita was play, playing before. But that's mean during colonial time up to now, it is still 
playing, yeah, in the same way somehow. Mm-hmm. In, in in the in the face of imperialist capitalism as it exists, it's still not entirely a post-colonial world, even though people would have you believe it is. I would go farther than that and to say it's not remotely a post-colonial world, that it mm. is all of the structures of colonialism are perfectly intact and they continue to function because they have different names and, and the names are associated with the same kind of benevolence that sustained the colonial project in the original iteration and people were inspired by the notion of civilizing people are now inspired by the notion of development people are inspired by the notion of bringing stem training around the world at the expense of all forms of indigenous knowledge at the interruption of indigenous languages all of these things that have a lot of popular appeal are in fact manifestations of the same logic that perpetuated and that propelled the colonial project and continues to perpetuate the colonial project. So the idea of capita in a literal sense in the physical territory that on a modern political map is referred to as the Democratic Republic of Congo that was colonized by Belgium, Belgian officials had Congolese workers who they would elevate with just a little bit more privilege over others so that they would enforce the master's bidding, so to speak. But that system is still perfectly intact, not only in formerly colonized places, but everywhere that's subject to the hierarchies of racial capitalism. And I think that I wanted to go back to your, I love that you started by asking about the bees, because that gives a really elegant point of entry into the larger conception of the work that we do as it's manifest in this film, but really all of the film work is one manifestation of a larger project around social and political and ecological and spiritual justice, as we conceive of it. At heart, both of us are really farmers and storytelling is for us an exercise in the same kind of discipline, the same kind of observation and the same kind of transformational process that we bring to our farming work. And not surprisingly, our farm does include beehives. <laughs> they are hopefully credited properly in the credits of Capita, <laughs> each and every one. But looking at the conditions that bees and other pollinators are facing, and there is that sort of beautiful analogy that you were alluding to in the sort of classical sense, but there's also the underbelly of that analogy, which is that, you know, bees are on the verge of total collapse, given all of the the same practices that are pushing people and communities to the verge of collapse, you know, the, the immediate parallel in the world of, of bees and beekeeping are, of course, monocultures yeah. and, and all of the chemical fertilizers and pesticides and, and all of the other things. We don't need to go too far down that rabbit hole. No, but just, but there's, a, there's an extraordinary and alarming, quite frankly, parallel between that and the same sort of forces at work in the exploitation of the human beings who are depicted both historically and in the present in the film. So that was sort of part of our reflection of how to marry sound and image um, and I actually just want to explain that my classical analogy is also the story of that, because if you know your Roman history, the Punic Wars, where they then sow Carthage with salt and very much subjugate everyone in that population as well. And I mean, that's I think that's why it's such a beautiful analogy, right? Because you yeah. give the vantage point of the people who benefit from it, who see it yeah. as beautiful, and the people who are actually experiencing it yeah. don't experience it as beautiful at all. And exactly. that's 
that puts the finger right on this notion of the, of the capita power dynamic and the hierarchy exactly. and that which is a benefit to one group comes at the expense of a much, much larger group of people. And I, I, that was, that's what, how I heard your analogy anyway. Thank you. Thank you. I, I was worried that didn't come through. And I also really think it's so explicitly, though, also about how we get the technology that we get in the modern day and how that comes at the cost of these natural resources that indigenous families and indigenous lives have been laid down to protect for thousands of years. And at what cost have these things come to the rest of the world? I love that your film looks very explicitly at that from a historical standpoint and takes a very unique lens in terms of approaching that subject. I think both through the use of camera techniques, but also through visual metaphor, as well as that lovely sound metaphor with the buzzing of the bees. It's really quite wonderful how you are managing to work on those multiple levels at the same time in terms of talking about the exploitative treatment. But what made you, first of all, decide in your collaboration together to work on this particular project in this way? I know that's a hard question. <laughs> it's a really interesting question. I'm really grateful for it. So this is probably not a very complete answer, unless you have something you want to start with. Yeah, I'm sure I'll think of the perfect thing right when we finish. But sort of to trace the prehistory of this project a little bit, it's the second in a triptych of films that we're working on, all of which deal with archives. And so Petna is a person who has personally been producing archives and representations of the Great Lakes region for decades now and has had a keen awareness. You can speak more to this. I don't want to speak for you, but of the stark difference between somebody from the, from, between the way somebody from the region represents it and the ways that it has historically and contemporarily been represented from outside lenses, literally and symbolically. And we had a project that began in 2016 that was a collaboration with the Anti-Slavery Knowledge Network at the university. It was a project at the University of Nottingham in the UK. And through that project, we got access to a collection of archival photographs that were the photographs that introduced Congo to the Western world. And it was such a stark it was such a striking experience looking through this archive and being asked to, to to figure out how to represent these images in a way that was, you know, sort of a decolonial archive, so to speak. And that led to the first in this series of three films that we're working on. The first is called Matata that came out last year. And in some ways has a sort of similar aesthetic in that it's also visually quite striking. It also doesn't have any narrative and yet really, really vividly tells a story that is both past and present. And there's the simultaneity of, you know, nonlinear time that works through that. There's, you know, the question of representation from, from multiple perspectives and so through that process, we also then gained access to other colonial archival collections. And we could have a whole separate conversation about the politics and the ironies of all of this history being held in the vaults of former colonial institutions and okay. us having a hard time getting access to it. Time out. Can we have that conversation later? 
Yeah, I would love to have that conversation later. Yeah, it might be a whole other episode. It would be. Really it things. would be. I know it would be. Yeah. But I would love to. Yeah. So there's that. But the point that really sparked in my mind in, in response to your question was that I don't know if, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when, when something starts, but I was, I don't know what I was doing, probably starting seedlings or something. And all of a sudden I heard Petna shouting, Bam, Bam, come here. And I thought something was on fire or I, somebody had fallen down the side. I didn't know what had happened. He was so animated. I'm running inside, mud all over me. And he goes, look, look, there's a person there. And he's looking at this footage that looks like nothing but grainy black and white flecks. And he pauses and he says, there's a person there. They've buried a person in plain sight. There's a person there. And I'm like, huh, a what? And so he developed this technique where he was able to manipulate these archival images. And literally before my eyes, the the people became visible. And he basically developed a technique to counteract the, I don't have the technical language here to to say this very well, but I know that historically and and still to this day, cameras are calibrated against white. They do the white balance technique. Mm -hmm. And so they, they know white as the sort of the true baseline against which all other color is measured. And with the quality of images during the colonial era that, you know, meant that all of these white enshrined white bodies were literally glowing and radiant to say nothing of the angles that, you know, elevated them further in stature, but just, just literally the calibration of the camera had this impact and it, it invisibilized so many other bodies that were there. And he developed a technique to counteract that camera calibration and Literally, as, as he was applying that technique before my eyes, literally, I was watching people, multiple people appear in this footage that ostensibly didn't have people in that section. And so that became a point of departure for seeing who else was buried, what else was literally buried alive, not only in the physical infrastructure that people were being forced to build, but even in the materials representing the representations of the philanthropic quote unquote you can't hear you can't see air quotes in podcasts these are this is <laughs> there's a lot of air quotes going on here the ostensibly philanthropic project of colonization and so that for me was a moment of sort of falling in love with the footage that he eventually developed into capita and then it went through we have a good process of butting heads and reworking and butting heads and reworking. But for me, the moment that I remember most distinctly was that shout of, you know, and the demand, look, there are people here. Until he, until he showed me the process that he had developed, I couldn't see them. They, they were invisible. But then once, once you see it with that process and then he puts it back to normal, you can still see them. It's like excavating the image. Once you realize it's there, it's always there. And for you, Petna, excavating that archive, what was that process of discovery like? Well, um, you know, we, it has been a while that we have been teaching a course called Decomposing the Colonial Gaze. Yeah, I, I was reading about that on your website. Yeah, and, and, and with that, the, the process, it is about learning how to see anew, you know, learning how to see anew. Like, uh, and this, it is based on, on, on finding details. And, and and with me, since uh, uh, I was young, you know, I've, I've been always wondering, and that's what made me, in fact, go to cinema, what is behind the camera or what is in the camera itself that makes, distort the reality. 
because I've been fascinated about films. I wanted to to understand the mystery around around films. I will see most of the time it was foreigners when I was young. They will come with cameras and film, right? They will film, and when I will see the results, I'll be like, "That's not what I've been seeing." So it always becomes something different. It will be like. Just, yeah, like the word fiction may make sense. Like it be the completely fiction. This has nothing to do with what I'm living. And uh, uh, with that, getting these images, yeah, when we had access to, to these images from the Museum of, of Terviren in, in Belgium, I start spending more time in, in finding those details because I know that we will go and teach this course <laughs> and, and we, we are teaching, but uh, myself, we have to apply it to myself first, uh, the theory. So we start looking at, the, at these details and then applying many filters and, and, and adding saturation on, 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 on images and then reframing uh, the way the film were framed. And that's where many details start. Uh, appearing, you start like showing up, like whoa! Even this person, I, 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 you could start seeing a black body which was erased in, in in the film itself. You can see like they are looking at the camera, and you can tell now the fear that that what is this thing? Why am I being filmed? But they they are powerless. Then when I start seeing these details, and of course I was super excited. That's why I got called. <laughs> I was like, hey, Pat, look here, there are people, we are there, and we're not seeing it. And this was also at the same time seeing, okay, let's see, this is what is being shown as a reality. What about what we are not seeing also in these images? Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, and that's how the, the, the whole technique that we're developing of, of, of a film within a film, uh, how do you access it? Mm-hmm. You know, because if the world, is uh is made of stories and and people enact the story they believe in then the world we are we inhabit now today the way it is it has been dominated by one single story right yes. and then yeah. so um that means then there is a story within all those stories that we we, we have been uh, consuming so far so that's what we we are going for and trying to see uh how to make visible what was made invisible and then also uh, try also to to see what was omitted within that picture? Uh, for 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 me, that's the the, uh, the the process of finding in these images yeah. uh, and seeing that yeah, that's and it, you know it's, it's I mean you might imagine that working on projects like this sparks a lot of conversation between the two of yeah. us. and one of the conversations that's been very precious to me. I don't know if this really gets at your question, but maybe indirectly has been the sort of multi-layered question of physical geographic reality and then also representational reality, Mm -hmm. right? And so when, for instance, we can only refer to this part of the world as Congo, we've already erased, like we've, we've started at a point in history that makes everything that preceded that invisible and it, and it accepts a certain set of terms that deny so much of what we actually value and want to valorize and want to interact with in our in our daily lives right so so there's the there's the sort of geographical erasure that has that has taken place and then we have these representations of that process literally unfolding in real time and even as it's being represented then there's also the sort of narrational erasure of bodies 
by virtue of camera technologies, but also by virtue of all of the power hierarchies that you were talking about before yeah. that, that lead one person to be behind a camera and others to be in front with whatever mm -hmm. kind of differential relationships that represents. So this, this sort of parallel of erasures that have become so normalized that it's it, it, like it requires a certain kind of discipline to question them, right? Just to answer the question, you know, where are you from? The knee-jerk response is to say, well, Congo, because that's a place that people have heard of. Right. But if in terms of my actual sense of my relationship to space, Congo is an interruption. Yeah. Right. So Congo what do you say? <laughs> that's a complicated question. As well, well, I want to know the answer. Well, no, I want to hear the complicated answer. answer. <laughs> no, that's the answer. We say it's a complicated question. Oh. And for people who, who press further, um, I actually just wrote a section about this in the, in the book that I most recently completed about these stories of how to answer from by virtue of reference to a modern political map is to be complicit in a global condition of violence. And so typically what we do is tell relationships, uh, tell stories of our relationship to land in different places and talk about, um, talk about it from that perspective. Mm. And people get really confused because they still want to know, okay, but how do I get there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's actually kind of interesting because when I recorded the land acknowledgement for this podcast, I, I think I confused a couple of people who were like, you know, okay, but you say the lands of the Manahoak, but what does that mean geographically? Well, it means the lands of the Manahoak. They are the ones who owned this land first. And I could say Virginia, but that's not... That's not the point. That's not the point. No, there wasn't Virginia. So, yeah. Now that I'm thinking about this, I should go back and edit it again because I added in Virginia to make people feel more comfortable with it. And now I'm second guessing that decision. I may just go back and change that. Yeah. So thank you for changing my mind. <laughs> There's a real power. I, I appreciate your reflection there. There is a real power. The more we participate, the more we continue to identify things by their colonial names, the more real they become, right? And yeah. the, the more we refuse to participate, the more possibilities begin to exist for something else. So there's yeah. a real, it's not, it's not an empty exercise. It's not at all. And the erasure that happens is quite real in terms of the erasure of places and histories and languages, even just from simple geographic boundary names and lines in the sand that may seem meaningless to some. Because, and this goes back to the question of simultaneous temporality, right? Because when we change the name in that and, and participate in that kind of erasure, we make all of that stuff in the past. Well, that mm -hmm. used to be true, but it's not still. There are still people in all of these places <laughs> who live in them as they were before the colonial interruption. And by saying, well, it was their land, we pretend like it isn't still. Like that was over, like that's something in the past, that's history, that book is closed. They're still here, like like literally 2021, they're right here. And it is still their land. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting that sort of weird experience that you have. I've, I've spoken with other indigenous creators on the show from different other countries. It's always a very different way of thinking about the world, I feel, for a lot of people, because you don't see what's there and what has always been there. For whatever set of reasons, that's not what you acknowledge as the alpha 
the thing that has always been. Well, I mean, that's very, that's very intentional. And again, this is, this is another rabbit hole that could be a whole conversation, but how many of us would actually perform allegiance to the systems of normalized violence that erase it if we were taught that other things are also simultaneously true? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what Petna was getting at earlier, yeah. the yeah. power of having a single narrative. And, yeah. and that's not a symbolic problem. That is the thing that drives all of the all of the global hegemonies is this belief that this is the one the one truth and you know this is the united states says who yeah imperialist capitalism that's who yeah and you know it's a powerful engine and yet other things are also here simultaneously other things you know is it congo i mean king leopold said it was yeah and we know how great he was obviously <laughs> yeah and he told it <laughs> I'm sorry, what did you say? I said he even spelled it wrong. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, the Congo people are an indigenous people to what is now called Congo and it's K-O-N-G-O. Mm-hmm. And they one of the one of the jokes that's not really jokes, but one of the, the precious humorous stories in the region on the east is that when people, when Belgians came saying that they were in Congo, people said, no, 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 the Congo kingdom is like way on the other side, you know, thousands of miles on the other side. You're lost to you. You're lost. (laughs) (laughs) But they decided that the whole thing should be called Congo. Oh, lovely. Lovely. Mm. Because, yeah, language doesn't matter, obviously. We can call whatever we want, whatever we want. And I blame Julius Caesar for that. I do. <laughs> My students used to always kind of make fun of me because I was that wacky Latin teacher who always spent time mocking Julius Caesar as that megalomaniac who basically took away all of the land and understanding of so many different tribes and nations and so forth. But he kind of set the template for what eventually was done in the name of imperialism everywhere, I think. Anyway, not to make it all about Latin, but I did want to ask you guys, as farmers, do you have specific thoughts about what course you can take in terms of restoring the earth at this juncture? There's so much going on that's just absolutely destroying everything and... I very much admire that you guys are spending so much time connected in that way, as well as doing all of this wonderful archival research to literally find the representation that's been missing for so long. But in terms of renewing the earth as well, how how are you going about looking for renewal there? So I like that you ask big questions that each could be their own full conversation. And I'll try and give a concise answer, knowing that there are many other details. I would say that there are three pieces to that project for us. And they're all invested in long-term change as opposed to immediate short-term solutions. And so we think of our work as an interconnected series of circles that are literally farming the land and our farm is an educational farm. So it's really about producing food and and things, but also about producing knowledge. And so people come in fact in 25 minutes, a group of people are coming 
as part of our spring cohort to, to learn about indigenous and restorative agricultural practices. So we're very interested in teaching both farming and uh, the second in the, in the series of circles I was just referring to was education more broadly. Etna talked about the course Decomposing the Colonial Gaze, which we teach on an ongoing basis. And that has everything to do with pursuing this question of how do we learn to see the kinds of systems of, of violence that have been so normalized that we just participate in them as if they weren't optional, that we just sort of go along thinking, oh, well, that's just reality without realizing that so many of these things are, in fact, an accumulation of a series of really terrible choices and that there are other choices that, that we can slowly over time make. Well, some faster than others, the educational piece, really to, to learn to see the systems that we're just supposed to accept as being immovable. And then the third piece is storytelling, right? So Petna said before, there's a, there's a proverb that we orient our work to that says that the world is made of stories and human beings enact the stories we believe. And so we are in the process collectively of enacting a very specific story of our right to dominate and to extract and to privatize and to do all of the things that serve our own capitalist greed glands. We are collectively conditioned to believe that that, that, is, that is true. And so to us, the, the real political power of filmmaking is part of a movement of storytelling that reveals other ways, other stories that we can also live by. We can literally live by other stories. If it occurs to us that the one that we've been taught is true, isn't working and isn't necessarily true at all. And it's serving ends that we don't value. And it has effects on our daily lives that we don't appreciate. It has effects on our communities or on the natural world around us that we don't like. Then why are we still believing the same story? And why are we still ki literally killing ourselves mm -hmm. to to reap the rewards of a story that is causing the death and destruction of everything. Like it doesn't make any sense. And there are so many examples of other ways of living in the world. And so for us, the combination of trying to impart skills with which to see the facades that, that were asked to, to pledge allegiance to, um, and to then, you know, through the farming work to imagine something else, through the storytelling work to imagine something else, that's the sort of three-part response. And it isn't going to, you know, stop the destruction of the Amazon tomorrow, but neither are reactionary movements no. that subscribe to the same foundational logic. Right. So the point is, how do we create something else that is that's that's neither trying to tear down what exists nor to reproduce what exists, but that is based on a completely different set of premises. And, and the best way that we've been able to figure to do that is to try our best to, to live it in our daily lives and to talk about it with other people and to learn from other people and to tell stories about it. And, you know, from multiple perspectives to just, you know, the, the moment it cracks, the moment you suddenly consider, oh, this is just a story. And I don't like what it's doing to me. All of a sudden, there's an opening and a possibility. And arriving at that moment, whether it's, you know, through cultivation, whether it's through creative practice, whether it's through study, doesn't really matter how we get to that moment. That, that little rupture represents, you know, the, the potential, potential beginning of unraveling and a re-weaving. That wasn't a short answer. I lied. I tried to give you a short <laughs> That's quite all right. That's quite all right. It was a beautiful answer, though, and an elegant one. There's no short way around that. It is a no. process, as you said. And if you don't respect the process, that you end up again with a problem. 
all this need of shortcut yeah it is very harmful to the nature the yeah. mother nature and it's ultimately just pageantry politics if that's all you're going for is the shortcut answer mm. that's a whole other conversation we could have but i realize you guys have class soon so i don't want to tie up too much of your time we got but compost I, piles to turn. I'm sorry? <laughs> we got compost piles to turn. Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> since you guys are very, very busy, I did want to just quickly give you a few minutes if you want to say anything specifically about what you're doing and how our listeners can get involved in what you're doing with al Films and your film production company and the coursework that you're teaching. So we try to keep the website really, really simple, but there's contact information and there's a basic description of the work that we do there. In terms of decomposing the colonial gaze, that's a course that people can just express interest in. And we do small cohorts at a time. And there are possibilities for people to, you know, sign up individually or what we've found a lot of receptivity among schools who want to do this kind of work with their teachers who are trying to sort of re-envision the educational curricula that they're offering as they are instilling in young people the story that they're, oh, more air quotes, the, the story that they're ostensibly meant to believe. Um, so there have been schools that have asked us to, to work with cohorts of faculty at a time and then individual people who sign up. So that's, that's basically a matter of going to the website for the Yole Institute. And the farm, similarly, that's a little bit more geographically specific, but we do have opportunities for people to do either coursework on the farm for people who are just wanting to learn more about, you know, growing food or growing, growing in, in ways that are revitalizing to the earth. We have opportunities for people to sign up for a spring cohort or a summer cohort or a fall cohort, and we rest a little bit in the winter. Farm's still going, but there's less, there's less to to do in that sense so, and we also do you know ritual work and community building work for people who are just looking you know don't necessarily want to do a whole course but are, are interested in some opportunity to to begin to build some kind of a connection with the lands or who had a connection and, and don't have a place to exercise that given you know their living circumstances and then for a period of their lives or whatever whatever the needs are and and the film production really the things that, that occur to me are obviously we appreciate when people participate in festivals like this and and watch the work. Also, for people who are really interested in supporting, Al Cable Film Productions is not only part of the Yole Institute, but also part of our sister organization in Congo, which is called Yole Africa. And that is a cultural center that provides education for young people in the politically turbulent region of, of Goman in North Kivu, which for people who follow, follow the news has been a site of escalating conflict for decades. Well, depending on you, how you see it since, since the, anyway, since colonization, but um, it's been particularly violent over the last number of decades. And um, so we've been, Betna founded Yole Africa in 2000. I've been part of the project since 2009. Um, and we offer workshops and training and courses and professional development opportunities and all kinds of things for uh, aspiring storytellers in any medium. And so we're always, that's a small grass, well, it's not small in terms of numbers, but small in terms of budget, <laughs> grassroots community led organization. And we always have room for volunteers with certain skills and people who are 
interested in contributing, whether that's through a capitalist economy or a gift economy. But there's always there's always room for for participation and exchange with Yoli Africa in Congo for people who are interested in that. So that's I think my best answer to that question. And all of these all of these have websites, so there is there is more information and you know visuals and short films and all kinds of things for people to see to get a richer sense of all of the. Um, yeah. all of the different moving pieces. And I'll provide all of those links in the show notes so that our listeners can have easy access to all of the wonderful work that you are doing. We're grateful for that. Well, okay, big guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's your cue. <laughs> but I want to thank you so very much for this wonderful conversation. I know I personally have learned so much and I would love to return to talk to you more about several different issues. I really love your work. Good luck at the festival. I hope it gets all the acclaim it deserves and keep doing what you're doing because it is so important. All right. And to, to your listeners, please, guys, you have to remember there is a lot of possibilities out there. There is not only one way. There is so many ways and they've been there for as long as you can imagine or you can think. So, seek for other possibilities. Thank you. To be continued. To be continued. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of land stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. Mm-hmm.